Hello and welcome to the Film Angle. I'm Alex. And I'm Chris. And we're back, baby, after a three-week break, a little longer than intended there. Yeah, yeah, it's it does feel longer than three weeks as well. It's It's been a while, but we've seen a lot of movies. Yeah, we we have seen a lot of movies. We have seen a lot of movies. I feel like maybe I, I'm a little rusty. Like, I need to get back into podcasting. I love doing it, but, like, I was a little nervous about tonight. Yeah, like, I feel a, a little bit, like, that little butterflies in your stomach moment. You're like, I don't even know why I feel like this. At the end of the day, if no, if it doesn't work out, I gotta wish just delete the file. <laughs> <laughs> but we try not to waste an hour of our lives. <laughs> that's, that's... We try not to. We try not to. But yeah, as 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 Chris mentioned, we have, um, um, we have seen a massive amount of movies within the three weeks that um, we've been away. And we weren't really sure, we, we kind of wanted to talk about all of them. Um, but then also there's been the massive new Scorsese release with uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. And uh, we realized that's probably where the bulk of our attention is going to be because that was a big film that we were very much anticipating. I feel like we were talking about that film from like day one of the podcast. Like it has been a highly anticipated release for a while. Yeah. And uh, we'll get into whether that was justified, the hype, the build up for it. Um, I st- I feel like it is the biggest movie that everybody's talking about at the minute too. So you know, hopefully, uh, listeners who tune into today's episode will have a chance to kind of uh, chime in on the conversation too. Uh, but some of the films that we've both seen uh, recently within our three weeks, and there's been a lot, are I'm just going to list them, and then we're going to kind of like we're going to do a bit of a fun kind of spin the wheel to find out what we're going to talk about first because it's really difficult to know how to put these into an order. So we thought we'd spin a wheel and uh, spin the wheel generator, should I say, uh, to kind of um, give us an idea as to what we should talk about first and kind of keep us on our feet as well, I guess, without, uh, you know, kind of settling to any kind of random order. Uh, But yeah, the films we are going to talk about are Flora and Son, Saw 10, uh, I Like Movies, which is a little indie film, Mm -hmm. Canadian indie film, um, Blackberry, Totally Killer, and a film that you and I, I think we've spoken about quite a bit on here, having wanted to watch it, is Bottoms, which just got its UK release. Yes. It makes sense that you choose to do this as a spin the wheel because there's lots of different <laughs> dips and valleys of uh, of moods and genre here. Yes. Like we always do on the film angle, we always like to make our wine pairings as uh, as bad taste as possible um so this is keeping in tradition for sure absolutely so we're going to go through these films which we have uh thoughts on uh but maybe just not quite as in-depth thoughts as we want to talk about the scorsese film which we will later so uh chris shall i go and spin the wheel sure uh, you can't see the wheel. <laughs> I can't see the wheel either. So this is I'm a, I'm in complete suspense. <laughs> I know it's going to be one of the movies you mentioned. <laughs> All right, it's Flora and Son, Chris. We're going to okay. talk about Flora and Son first. Yeah, um, a movie that kind of like came out of nowhere. I mean, John Carney is a is one of you know the best things to kind of come out of Ireland in terms of a of an auteur style of filmmaker. Um, you know, 2007's Once was like one of those movies that really spoke to me in my teenage years. I find it, you know, so desperately romantic and it was very kitchen sink and very homemade. And then we get something like, like Sing Street in 2016, which is him honing his craft perfectly, making a pretty epic semi-musical set in Dublin, kind of like 
a young version of the commitments, but even better. Um, so mm. I, I love that movie so much. So I came in pretty loaded to Flora and Son, even though I only found out months ago that it existed. It's it's kind of being dumped onto Apple TV with no fanfare. And he deserves, as a filmmaker, he knocks out of the park so much that he deserves a little bit more build-up than that. Yes, yeah, I, I agree. After um, Sing Street, which I think was the first of his films I've seen, uh, I did watch Begin Again. I remember that one. Um, and uh, mm. yeah, re- really kind of like his style of films. And um, same as you, I think you were the one who kind of brought it to my attention that Flora and Son was his latest and just had been dropped on uh, streaming like we all knew uh, we all knew uh, flowers of the killer moon nope sorry killers of the flower moon was coming <laughs> uh, uh, you know apple tv did a lot to uh, kind of advertise that one but not so much um floor and sun here but yeah it's uh it's john it's it's a john carney film isn't it okay how do you pronounce his name chris carney carney i would have said carney i haven't heard anybody it. speak in an interview i haven't seen anything like that but i would assume it's carney the way it's spelled yeah, John Carney. Yeah, it's a John Carney film through and through. It's kind of cheesy and melodramatic, and uh, it kind of just it, but it, it breaks you down, and you just kind of like vibe with its soft side yeah. and its kind of silly corniness. And it is, it is really corny. Uh, I thought it was funny that um, there's a whole kind of scene where they make fun of a James Blunt song, and I feel like James Blunt songs do the exact same thing. <laughs> that this film was doing which is like it's a really simple cheesy exterior but you know what i kind of like this this is good i like james blunt and i like john carney films as kind of corny as they are james blunt does not get a good um a good representation in this film i know i was really surprised at that i i I mean i just i have a very soft spot for james blunt so i i I don't know i kind of i kind of love james blunt so i did not like that scene (laughs) it lost half a star instantly for you absolutely absolutely. it would have been a five-star film had they not uh, (laughs) made fun of james blunt i mean come on low-hanging fruit here is if you want to make fun of anybody with a like a dude with a guitar you make fun of ed sheeran come on yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think the movie was that far away from doing that either. But it's like, uh, what I really appreciate about Carney, I think this probably is the, it's, it's kind of more similar to Begin Again in terms of its corniness. I think Sing Street was a lot more sweeter. It, had a little, it was earnest as well, but it, it didn't feel as, ta- you know, as, as tacky. And I think Once is definitely, you know, the most grinded film. But I really like it too. I, I think it kind of reminds me a lot of uh, Richard Curtis in terms of, Yes. You know, it's very treacly, it's very over the top in terms of its sentimentality, but it feels like it comes from a real, a real genuine place. It comes from somewhere that is actually felt and uh, you can kind of overlook everything else because you're having such a good time. You know, the laughs are coming in and the performances are great too. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning um, yeah. Eve Hewson, who, yeah. is, who is Bono's daughter. Um, no, I, is she? Yeah, yeah. Did I did you know, not did you know, know that. that? Dock it half a star. <laughs> Not a YouTube fan. Um, <laughs> so I, she's I great. Yeah, she's great. I haven't seen her in anything before, and she she's perfect for this kind of role. She has that sort of you know that that edgy exterior, but the heart of gold. And, you know, we're 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 talking the corniness out ourselves here, mm. but yeah, she she's great here. Um, you have Joseph Gordon Levitt kind of um, doing a performance, like yes. I'm always happy to, be... to see him pop up. You know, like I just feel like ever since Dark Knight Rises, he just kind of disappeared a little mm. bit. 
He's so talented. I've I I used to watch those clips of him. Like there's a clip of him when he was in Little Shop of Horrors. I'm like, oh, this guy can sing and he's like a triple threat. He can do everything really. Yeah, and, I'm uh, surprised. Actually, was Looper like his last big film? I feel. Okay, I mean, know he played like 12. voice roles in the Star Wars films, but or one of them anyway. The Ryan Johnson one, because obviously him and Ryan Johnson have worked together a lot. But yeah, I just I'm happy to whenever I see Jessica Gordon Levitt, I'm just happy to see him. Like an old mm. friend. Yeah, and uh it kind of there's this relationship. She well the story very quickly, she uh Eve Houston plays Flora, who is kind of a down on her luck uh single parent who has a teenage son at home and they just kind of bad heads all the time. She He's constantly in and out of uh, the police or the Garda custody. You know, we're talking about Dublin here. And uh, she tries to find an outlet for him and finds a guitar in, in a skip, in a, in a dumpster, and uh, gets it repaired and gives it to him. And he's not interested at all. So um, in her haste, she tries to throw it out the window, which is quite a funny gag. Um, she can't actually fit it through the window when she tries to chuck it through. And uh, she decides to pick it up herself. She gets guitar lessons online by uh, Levitt's character Jeff, who lives all the way in LA. He's a field musician. You kind of see where this is going. Uh, they both connect over these sessions. And uh, yeah, it's a really sweet film. I like the way I was kind of worried when it was it was going to be all over camera, this movie, that he'd just be behind a screen and we'd really not mm. get this connection. But Carney makes a really smart decision by, you know, doing these um, camera fades or, or spins of the camera where we get a rotation and then suddenly um, Levitt's in the frame and he's in the room with Flora and they have you know a genuine connection in, in the moment and it's yeah that really serves the purpose of the movie really really well and this thing's just a good time yeah yeah really good really good and uh, but yeah like like I mentioned bad poster Bad po- yeah, bad poster. <laughs> bad poster. It, it does. It does look like she's waiting for a flight. Yeah. I just hate the head headphone. Like you know, it's obviously the silhouette of her son. I just, I just, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of in tune with all the other John Carney posters. I, I do like the Sing Street one, but yeah, it's it, it's not the vocal point. It's not something that would make you click on the movie, right? I mean, if I didn't know about this movie, I would skim past that poster mm. in RB. But. Yeah. uh we're not poster critics. No, we're not we're, poster critics. I'm, technically, we're not film critics. Either. <laughs> <laughs> technically, that as well. Um, but, but yeah, here we are. If you own an Apple TV subscription, you probably still don't know this thing exists. But search it on your Apple TV and give it a watch because it's a really good, nice, relaxing evening sort of film. Nice unwinding sort of comedy. Feel good stuff. Um, and a great music as well. Yes, indeed, indeed, as always. All right, I shall spin the wheel again, and we'll see what we're going to talk about next. All depends on internet speed. Saw X. So (laughs) far, we're doing it in order. I feel like I've done something wrong. Well, I called it Saw X. It's actually Saw 10. Um, Yeah, I feel like everybody just calls it Is it the 10th film, though, Chris? Because I was thinking this. There's so many spin-offs, and I know you've been recently doing a bit of a Saw marathon. I did one a couple years ago, but I don't fully remember everything. Yeah, I don't blame you for for like not redoing it. <laughs> I think it's going to be a one and done for me as well. When I, you know, we were big fans of this, you know, when I was kind of coming into like high school, secondary school, um, the Saw movies were really, really big. And it was in the early part of the whole anthology. So I had only seen up to Saw 4 at that time. And then 
I just kind of, I don't know why. I just never watched any of the other ones afterwards. So I went back and rewatched all the Saw movies. This is definitely the 10th one. Um, yeah, and they're, they are a mixed bag. Um, <laughs> is, spir- is Spiral counted as the ninth? Yeah, so, so you, you do have, um, so Jigsaw is number eight. Yeah. And then after that is Spiral, the Book of Saw, from the Book of Saw. Gotcha. Um, and then this. So that would I don't remember ten. Saw 7. Was that just... Saw 7 is Saw 3D. Gosh, yeah. Yeah, I think <laughs> I very much did the same as you where I got to Saw 4 and was just like... And then, you know, I probably caught up at the time with the films. I remember watching them on my iPod Nano. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's definitely under the, the covers, Under the covers, sneaking a little Saw film in. Uh, so, yeah, we did the same as what you did, but we did it a couple of years ago. I think I was, for some reason, delusionally uh, excited for Spiral. Um, oh yeah! The thought that maybe you thought that Chris Rock was going to give you a really good grinded performance. <laughs> I thought this was going to be the interesting. I thought like the, the detective thriller Fincher esque saw movie. I was like, this is this is great. This is what it needs. But no, turns out it needed it needed that film uh, to to truly kill the franchise in order for Saw Ten to thrive. So Chris. Through that, was only, that was only two years ago as well. <laughs> was it worth going from the first Saw film and then watching <laughs> nine really bad films, no, eight really bad films, to then get to the second good Saw film? Well, I'll tell you what. What's <laughs> what's what's the main reason that you enjoy these movies? I On a personal level, what is it that attracts you to these? What do you enjoy when you watch a Saw movie to think that was a good Saw movie? I love how stupid they are and it's and it's okay. the gore and it's the over-reliance on plot like all of them interlink in really stupid ways oh yeah I guess and we're they backtrack on themselves and they rewrite themselves and i just love this commitment to not being like a one and done each each film i love the yes. fact that they're trying so hard for this interconnected story and do you know what there's something the stupid traps and the gore and everything is it, it yeah, it's, it's it's always a fun time despite how bad most of the films are yeah and the end the end each movie on the same piece of soundtrack which is like a super corny piece of music that they use to do the big reveal and the flashbacks and how everything worked out and uh yeah i always enjoy that part but i would say for me the thing that i love about these movies is tobin bell when he's in it when he's the center focal point of the movie i think that is kind of when it's at its strongest i think as John Kramer, I mean, he just gives it this steely sort of performance, but like he kind of, you can't argue with his logic. I mean, when it handed over to the agent guy, it was an agent, um, Strom Hoffman. Oh, no, Strom was the one he killed. Agent Hoffman. Yeah. Strom was actually okay. I'm the saw man. What yeah. are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, we we have a, a Tony Soprano wannabe. Um, slash slice slice alone wannabe actor. It's <laughs> just trying to orchestrate this whole thing, and it's not believable at all. We just wish that he would die, and he doesn't die for three movies, and it's it's terrible. That's when Saw is at its worst state. Did you stay for the post credits of Saw Ten? Because I didn't. I forgot. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't feel like I that was going to be a thing. I suppose I just didn't. I, yeah. Okay. I to... Well, apparently he pops up. Oh my god! No way. Yeah. Nobody asked for that. Nobody I know. I didn't even think to say for a post credits of a Saw movie. I need to. Uh, I need to like find that online now. 
Uh, oh, I guess because it's it's a prequel, um, it's worth mentioning Saw 10. Is it yes. set between 2 and 3? Yes. And it takes a very interesting angle where for oh, the first yeah. half of the film, you barely know it's a Saw movie. You follow uh, Tobin Bell's John Kramer as he is uh, kind of struggling with his cancer diagnosis. And he heads off to Mexico for some kind of revolutionary but not yet legal treatment is then kind of, well, I'm butchering the the plot synopsis here, figures out that it was all a lie, a money-making scheme, and no kind of work had been done on him. They'd only taken his money, so then, therefore, he enacts his kind of usual revenge as Jigsaw, the serial killer. But yeah, like the first half of this film, you kind of forget. It's like a really kind of tender story which attempts to humanize a serial killer and gosh darn it i think it gets away with it <laughs> i think it gets away with it too i'm gonna like preface this by saying i think this is the best saw movie oh do you know what i always thought like do you know what? the simplicity of saw one it could never be beaten but uh man this this is great i was literally clapping at parts near the end as because there are so many moments that you don't get in a Saw franchise. So obviously I've spoiled the post credits already, but closure is if you don't want to hear more, but I think Chris, I really want to talk to you about where it goes in the end. Um, But the fact that we get to see Jigsaw have to take part in his own traps. Mm -hmm. That also involves an innocent child and kind of what you think is this kind of moment where he has been one-upped but obviously not fully didn't go according to plan, but a plan there nonetheless. And I just loved the twist at the end here. I just loved everything that was going on. I thought it was a really interesting place to take the Saw franchise and show you things that haven't been done before. I, I think you're right. I think considering that spiral was two years ago, this thing's a miracle. It actually is a genuine miracle that it's this good. It should not be this good. It's probably the best looking Saw movie. It's so it's actually so well directed. I think <laughs> the which is crazy for me to be saying the the traps. You know, maybe they they're not the goriest ones that ever happened in the franchise, but I felt them the most here. I yes. the, the tension in each of these. I, I I actually was for the first time in about six of these movies, my toes were curling. Um, and the, the vile ways that these people are taken out. But you're right. I mean, it does actually get away with humanizing John Kramer. Yeah. As, because in this, this, is, this is a revenge movie. You know, this is like if, if, um, if Liam Neeson was Jigsaw um, in a way. But it, yeah, it, it, gets, it gets away with it. But it, it's just crazy that this thing sort of exists. I think it helps that the, the main bad, the people that actually do this stuff to John, are pieces of shit they are terrible people they yes. are absolutely the worst people on the planet especially the lead benefactor cecilia who is just a stone cold icy person who is who does not care about anybody except the, the money yeah. and um we want to see john actually take 
not maybe not all of them, but we want to see him take her out in some fashion. And that's the first. That's a really weird way to invert the formula. Um, yes, because he's. They've always been people that you're supposed to be like. Oh, okay, fair well, enough. Druggies or like. Yeah, like, which is they kind of touch on kind of like how outdated that thinking is yes, at one point exactly. as well. Like John, man, there's a, there's a disease called addiction, man. Yes, you can't exactly. Just be killing people for being addicted to drugs. <laughs> yeah. And you feel nothing for them because they're usually just caricatures. But like these people, you, this is the first time you actually like, mm, I'm actually questioning about myself here. Am I, am I a bad person for actually maybe agreeing with John and wanting to see these people tortured? That's quite interesting. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And also having, we always had this distance from John in terms of the the actual games and the traps that these people are put in. It would always be through, you know, through the tape recorder or through the jigsaw puppet. But he's right down here on their level, talking, watching them die, explaining them through these processes. And there's just a real sort of like intimacy in these scenes that we didn't get in any of the other ones too. Yes. Um, that adds a completely different layer. We have Amanda. Amanda's back. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and doesn't look a day older, can I add? Like they all... Like, like, no, I mean like... Why don't you marry her, Chris? Yeah, I might. Um, Saul <laughs> Tan. Um, Saul Tan is very lucky that both of these these actors looked after themselves over the last 15 years. Tobin Bell's just always looked old. He's just, <laughs> just always looked old. He, yeah, he, he fits perfectly in the timeline. <laughs> he was in something I saw this year as like a background character. I'm trying to remember what it was, but I was like, whoa, that looks like Tobin was Bell. Was he in The Flash? Was he in The Flash? No, I don't think he was. I'm just trying to have a look. Goodfellas, that's it. He was in Goodfellas. I thought you meant this year. Well, yeah, I he watched, was, yeah, he was, as in he was I watched in it in the cinema this year. Sorry, he was in Goodfellas. Yeah, that's it. I, I just meant like a film I'd seen this year. Yeah, he was in the background of Goodfellas. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, uh, he's good. I mean, he, he's really good in this, to be honest. <laughs> and it's like, and it inverts him. Like at the end of the movie, he's kind of the he's the hero, and we're cheering for him, and yes. we see his good side. And I'm like, yeah, th- this is exactly what I I just wanted more Tobin Bell, and it kind of delivered on that on that basis but yeah the movie's just way better than it has any right to be and i either it was the first time in about six or seven movies i actually felt fully engaged you know i, I was edge of my seat it's kind of i think it's the longest saw movie too most of them don't really yeah. go past the 85 90 minute mark this one stretches to two hours and it felt the fastest pace out of all of them i, I loved it yeah, yeah, I was absolutely blown away by how much I enjoyed it as well. Jigsaw is the greatest Batman villain Batman never had. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a really good show. They kind of tried to do it with the Riddler, didn't they, I think? A little bit. There wasn't the saw traps. There were little things. Yeah. The yeah. Rats Saul's, that... Saul lives in its own entity. Yeah, I just so. would love to see Batman take him down. <laughs> yeah, somebody needs to knock that guy down a peg. Yeah, yeah. Come on, man. You can't be just killing drug, drug addicts, man. It's not good. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right, I'm going to spin the wheel for the next next film. I just need to get the wheel back up again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. All right. That's kind of important. And we are talking about Blackberry or Blackberry. I feel like I'm I maybe was... turning it into yeah. one word there. Where, where I, I guess it is, but it's like two. Yeah. Is it Blackberry or is it Blackberry? I don't know. I just, I kind of say it how it's spelled. <laughs> well, Blackberry is not about the fruit. It is actually about the phone brand, which was big what? about 10 plus years ago now. 
I can't remember the exact uh, I, I think, date I think range this like, film sent. I think it was starting to kind of go out of popularity, like about 2011, 2012 was kind of when we started seeing it phase out. Um, oh, that is, being is, said, that being said iPhone came out 2008. Mm-hmm. So it would have been, so it probably would have been big like 2006, 2007. And that's probably when the film was set. I remember uh, my dad having a Blackberry because, you know, my dad was in business, you know, worked in, you know, was traveling all the time with business. He's a business boy. Uh, my, da- uh, my dad was always kind of clicking on, on his Blackberry and had like the, the big crazy keyboard with the tiny, with the tiny little uh, buttons. I used to find it impossible to control whenever he used to like, let me play a game on it. Um, so it was yeah. So much I better it, than the having to press like three, three times to get an A or whatever it yeah. was. I can't remember. I, I was very, that was, my first yeah, mobile a big step was around that time and I definitely yeah. didn't have a blackberry. No, I think it was it, it was kind of for the businessman and then whenever the iPhone started coming out, I remember seeing a lot of like a lot of kids in school starting to have them around 2008 to 2012 and it was like the popular kids would have a blackberry and then and then it just disappeared off the face of the earth. So that's kind of the timeline yes. in my yeah. in my mind. And this, the film chronicles its rise to stardom, and then it's and then again, then it's drop off of uh, the the face of the earth as the iPhone comes out and kind of trumps what the idea of uh, a mobile can be. And BlackBerry doesn't really jump up to speed as it should. And it's it's one of those films that is like the rise and fall of a certain character, but in this case, it's uh, more like two to three characters. Um, Yes. Which is uh, Jay Baruchel, who plays the creator, and um, Glenn (laughs) Glenn Howerton from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Always love love when he pops up into a film. He is my favorite Always Sunny character, who who plays the businessman who kind of comes on board randomly and takes him to new heights, but he's a bit of a bit of a sleazeball as well. And then I think uh, he just jumped. He jumped straight out of the set of Always Sunny and just walked straight onto this movie. <laughs> just an angrier, uh, <laughs> just more business savvy person <laughs> with less hair. Uh, but then you have the director himself, Matt Johnson, who plays Doug, who's also another kind of co-founder of BlackBerry, along with Jay Baruchel, and their best friends. And their friendship obviously goes through peaks and troughs throughout this kind of tumultuous time. Um, have you seen Matt Johnson's previous film, or maybe his first film? Because I don't know how many films he's made. But have you seen The Dirties? I have not seen it. It's really I've good. Heard it's quite good. Yes, it's really good. I, I, when he popped up, because I didn't have much context when I saw the film, because I saw it on a plane. I saw it on the plane back uh, from Canada on an Air Canada flight, and there is an Air Canada scene in the film. So I wonder if that's why it's on there. It was like a Completely little intentional. Uh, mid-2000s style Air Canada logo. I was like, oh, oh Inception. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, when I saw him pop out, I was like, I've seen this guy before, and I had to wait until the end of the flight to like find out that no, like he was the director, and he had done the dirties, and I was like, I remember. And he that starred film. in the dirties as well as directed yeah, it too. It was like a he? found footage film uh, about them pretending to like kill people in their school, but then they end up killing some people in the school. Can't fully remember okay. um, the exact plot, but I remember thinking this is really good. Mm, I got, I got to check that out. I'm kind of encouraged after seeing this. Um, it kind of does a little bit of a spin on the 
what they call like the the biopics now <laughs> with, a, mm. with a BUI. Um, yeah, this is kind of like you know you've seen it's in the vein of like things like the Big Short, but it does something different. And the social kind of, network, very social. So, network. Yeah, it's actually probably but, more. You're right; it's probably more a social net, network in that vein. But it's double downs on the sort of narcissism yeah. of the of the characters, and you know I think it's the kind of. But this time it's not an uplifting ending where oh I was all a success. This is this is the rise and very very quick demise of a company, and that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. That's a different premise we haven't really seen before, and helps that the thing is kind of very loyal to the facts, but is also kind of hilarious and steeped in satire too. Yeah, it strikes a really really fine balance there. Um, yeah, I, I I had a really good time with this. Yeah, um, like when you hear like a, a movie called Blackberry, and you're like, okay, okay, this another is one of be these. One <laughs> yeah, another one of these. Yeah. Um, it is not another one of these. It's much better than that. And, I know. Um, I was so happy I picked it. I had to keep pausing it when they came around with like food and drink, and I was like, I'm invested. And like, but every time I paused <laughs> it, I was like, I realized how much I was enjoying it because I was like, I don't like. I know Blackberries aren't around anymore, so I know something's gonna mess up. But I was like, I'm really, I'm loving this. Well, that's the thing. Like, you could, you could know nothing. Like, we, we never had a Blackberry. I, we know about it peripherally, culturally, and how it was a, a thing that came and gone. But even if you just landed on Earth now and never knew about this phone system, you'd still have a really good time with this movie because it's a really interesting story. Yeah. Um, and the performances are cranked up to eleven. They really chew up the scenery in this movie. It's it's um, it's throwing everything at you. But yeah, it, it, it's kind of sad to see it not work out for them in the end, actually, um, because you see the effort and the tenacity behind you know, investing so much into this product and, and the brains behind it all mm. that, and how many weird, daring decisions were made. And then it just ends overnight. Steve Jobs comes up on stage and announces there's this phone that you can touch that has a touchpad and the game and it's game over. And that's like, that's yeah. that's kind of like the world that we live in now. It's just, there's always a reinvention of the wheel that comes around every every number of decades and it completely changes the game. And you're either lucky or you're not, and these guys weren't. Yeah, yeah, and it's a shame because uh, obviously Jay Baruchel's character, who again is Jay Baruchel, such a good, such a good, um, good. interesting cast good. from him. But like he, he abandons all his values in trying to keep at the top of the game, and obviously suffers suffers for it in the end. And yeah, brilliant casting, really good film. Like you said, very witty, very funny. Um, just yeah, dodgy, dodgy hairstyles. Oh, that's bad. Dodgy hair. So I thought, you know, <laughs> when you saw uh, Glenn's hair, and that's like, it's very distracting for about 15 to 20 minutes at least. Um, it, 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 it announces itself into the rim before he does. Um, it looks so shiny. And I thought it was a ball cap. He actually did shave it all, his, hair, his head for the movie. Oh. <laughs> like, that's actually his head. Maybe so, I'm just so used to seeing him with hair. Yeah, he's he's got this big like almost Andrew Garfield like quiff all the time going on. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. But he goes, he does go full Dennis Reynolds for anyone. He's a fan of Always Sunny. Um, if you want more unhinged, uh, Glenn Harrison, yes. <laughs> come you've come to the right place. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, I'm gonna spin the wheel again. It's kind of almost worrying though that like I it feels like that must come from a genuine place. He's too good at that. <laughs> yes, was it you or Lauren who said that their podcast you realize that he is the closest to his character in Always Sunny? 
he's he seems most easily irritated by things. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, there you go. What's All right, next? three uh, films left before we do Killers of the Flower Moon. All right, spinning the wheel. And Alex will try his best not to say flowers of the killer me. Yes, I'm really struggling with that. All right, Chris, it you is... You the first person... You know what? I've heard a lot of people do that. Yeah, yes, it is easy mistake to make. Uh, totally Killer is the next one we're going to talk about, uh, which is the kind of campy slasher parody... Uh, that was released on Prime recently with the girl from Sabrina the Teenage Witch reboot, the Riverdale yep. reboot one, um, and follows her as she... I can't, I can't bloody remember. <laughs> I can't remember what the... Well, the I know they go like... back in time. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm here this... going like, come right. up with a plot, and I'm like, this, this is... Murderer? <laughs> I mean, you can really sum this movie up by saying it is a nod to the 80s John Hughes movies with a sprinkle of Back to the Future in there. That is that is the movie. It, and Hot Tub Time Machine. And, and Hot Tub Time Machine for the Alexes out there. I kept, um, it was, I kept thinking about it when I, when I was watching it. I was like, oh, this I is think, like Hot Tub Time Machine. I think because the Time Machine is like <laughs> just like a crappy little photo booth in this. Yeah, and they go back to feels, the 80s, right? They go back to the 80s, so, yeah. Yeah. Hot tub time machine. So there, pretty much. I haven't seen that movie in years, man. I, I never saw Hot Tub Two. Good. I did. I don't think two was good, I but one so. was good. I remember one was quite funny. Like, <laughs> I, when when you're 12 years old, Hot Tub Time Machine is the funniest thing ever. But <laughs> <laughs> so this is this uh, centers around um, a string of murders that happened 35 years ago in the 80s um, in a small town in America. Uh, it was known as the Sweet 16 Killer. And he was a serial killer, or they were a serial killer, we don't know yet, um, who murdered these three um, close friends in high school um, a few days apart from each other. They were all murdered, and he was never found again. And uh, it's 35 years later, the shadow of this murder still haunts the town. And uh, it seems that the killer has resurfaced again um, out of nowhere. And they started murdering. And uh, Kiernan Shipka's character, Jamie, goes back in time with the help of her friend to go back to the 80s and undo all of the murders. But also, but also accidentally as well. But that's because um, you missed an important plot point there, Chris. Okay. Her mum is, is the guy killed. I didn't remember what the movie's called. Yeah, well, her, I think, sorry. her mum is killed by yes. the killer. And her mum is played by... Uh, Julie Bowen, who is um, who's Claire Dumphy in Modern Family. And I was like, oh, that's, that's the mom oh, yeah. from Modern Family. I remember her from Happy Gilmore. Was she Happy Gilmore? Yeah, yes. she was Happy Gilmore. Yeah. No, she, she wasn't, wasn't Happy Gilmore. She wasn't Happy. <laughs> she was in Happy Gilmore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's some funny faces that that turn up in here that I haven't seen in a while. Actually, what's his um, Lachlan Monroe? He's He's like in loads of those Whalen Brother movies, like like Little Man and, and, yes. and Scary Movie. I haven't seen that guy in years. Um, seeing him pop up was interesting, and she, he plays he plays the husband and the father. But yeah, it, it it turns into this sort of she goes back in time, and she has to kind of establish herself into this eighties environment, join the high school, try to infiltrate and find out some information so that she could stop these murders from happening, but also pass as a kid 
in high school in the 80s. And uh, obviously, there's quite a lot of funny jokes made that kind of poke at the, you know, how culturally different it was in the 80s. I think the first gag that we see is her go up to the school and and the emblem for the whole school team is is a Native American, but with a red with red face. And uh, she, I think she says something like, oh, that's problematic. Yeah, <laughs> so, she's like, oh, there's the racism. There's the racism. Coming. Knew it was coming. Yeah. Still surprised me. <laughs> so it sets itself up for loads of these jokes. Um, the fact that all the girls in gym class are wearing the shortest shorts ever which are really (laughs) seem really inappropriate and she's just like what's going on here um so there's a lot of like freaky friday fish out of water stuff going in here there's a lot it's a it's a best of hits kind of yeah slasher comedy movie and it's really it's again like like blackberry and movies we talked about it's a lot of fun yeah doesn't reinvent the wheel but is is an enjoyable little flick uh not so much a horror film more just kind of like a fun comedy parody kind of vibe to Mm. it didn't particularly feel scared at any point but i was intrigued to see where the story was going and it's really ridiculous as well because it presents itself quite seriously at the start feels like the start of like halloween or something like that and then like her best friend's making a time machine you're like this is so stupid tonally this doesn't work at all yeah the film kind of gets you on its weird wavelength and you're like okay It, it makes sense it's it's junk food but pretty decent junk food and yeah. um yeah and i think the thing for me that i don't know if it's a strength or a weakness i guess it's a weakness it didn't look like a movie to me it was very glossy it looked like tv it looked like you're watching an episode of sabrina uh, you know it, it had that very netflix sort of sheen to it. i know this is an amazon prime original yeah but no but you're that... right you're right it was very netflixy and yeah. uh, it's a shame that netflix has has <laughs> fallen so far they, they missed the, on this one. <laughs> the idea that like a shitty looking film is now like a Netflix looking film. Oh man. man. It's not so yeah. long ago though. They were considered quality, a quality studio. And now we're just like, it looks like a Netflix. I know. Yeah. You, they were starting off with like beasts of no nation, mud bind. And now we're all like this sort of from this sort of this stuff, shit. But, you know, <laughs> this shit. No, Right, it is shit, but it's good shit. It's it's yeah. decent shit. Yeah, at least you know it's I mean? junk food. I like that analogy. Junk food. It, it is, is junk food. food, but you know sometimes that's nice. Yes. <laughs> I'll spin the wheel for the next one. Keep losing the wheel. All right, here we go. <laughs> so between I like movies and bottoms. Um, let's keep on the wavelength. Bottoms. Oh, I've sp- span the wheel. The oh, wheel I thought decides. you were like. I thought you meant like the needle lamp. Oh no, no, the, the two movies. The, the the needle has decided, and you know what, Chris? It's on your wavelength. It's bottoms. Okay, bottoms. Out of the high two high school comedies, this is the better one. Oh, it, by it, far. Yeah. Um, it's already kind of being lauded as a modern comedy classic. Kind of similarly, how in 2019, the Booksmart was kind of given that appraisal. Um, I would say this is not quite as good as that movie, but it is it, it is really funny. And it kind of starts that new sort of, I guess it's a new subgenre, the lesbian high school comedy. You know, it's kind of, it kind it's of kind takes of that Fast Times and Clueless, the only two I can remember right now. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, it, remind, it reminded me a lot of Heathers. In a yeah, way. Heathers. Yeah. So like there's that kind of, um, kind of kooky, high school, American high school vibe going on. Uh, but obviously, you know, with a modern 
take which i guess you know it seems icky to say the modern take is like oh your two main characters are gay but yeah your two main characters are gay um and they are unlucky in love and they decide to start a fight club in order to kind of flirt with hot girls yeah (laughs) pretty much but like you're right though i mean it feels you know a lot of people would think that this is just like for the sake of it and trying to you know, push against culturally, but woke. these two, these two, the, yeah, people would say this is a woke movie, but I, it definitely, it definitely justifies itself. I think Rachel Sennett and Io Edibiri, they both kind of come in as these two characters that would, in an 80s movie, these two characters would just be two geeky, plucky teen boys. This would be like a weird science thing all over again, which I love, which is yep. kind of part of the thing, but they completely just completely meld into that role really, really well with jokes that are specifically not aimed at young boys that are more typically um, more relatable for the young teenage girl going to go in for school or maybe has a crush on another girl. You know, it's way more relatable on that level, but it's so funny. I think Rachel Sennett co-writes on this movie with Emma yes. Seligman. And they obviously and- did the film prior to this, though I don't think Rachel Sennett wrote it, but Emma Seligman directed Shiva Baby, which was, was excellent. Was Absolutely yeah, love that film. a real awkward movie. Um, really this tense, is not tensely awkward. I think Rachel Sennett really leans into that awkward humor really well. Like that mm. sort of character who just blurts out the most inappropriate thing at any time and has to navigate her way out of a situation. Um, I think her her character PJ and Io's character Josie, they just are really, really good partners of crime counterparts to each other. They're very, very different, but they, they really kind of oddly meld together. Um, Io was in... Uh, theater camp earlier this year which is a movie i loved but more um, importantly she, more importantly she was in the bear and she is great in the bear i need to see it i need to see it she's yeah. one of the main characters man <laughs> you'd love her in, in theater camp um she plays a teacher who comes into the camp who fakes her credentials and has no qualifications and and we keep returning to her for the movie trying to teach classes knowing nothing about any drama or theory and it's 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 really really good but this is a completely different rule for her um yeah both of them are really fun i i think all the jokes kind of basically land for me here i think the only thing i hesitate towards is a little bit of the tone thing i think it plays around with its tone quite a lot where i never really it probably took me a second viewing to really plant my feet and feel comfortable where, you know, in, in the mood and in, in the vibe of this movie as it's going yeah. along and the jokes. I think it kind of starts out and you kind of write, this is a high school world. And then 20 minutes in, you're kind of like, oh, this is like high. This is kind of fantasy realism stuff kind of going on. Things it's its own as- world. It mm-hmm. does its own thing. I think you hit up on that or hit up against that more than I did. Um, I loved that about it, but I loved that it was kooky, but not too kooky. And I was actually listening to a Q&A with the director today, actually. Um, and it was interesting that she actually touched on that point, that that was the biggest kind of thing uh, in the screenwriting and in the editing room was like, what's taking this too far? And they actually cut out a lot of stuff that kind of took your idea of the world and was just like, this is taking it too far. This is too wacky. This is too silly and doesn't work within this world. Um, but yeah, it was very, mm. she spoke a lot about kind of building up to kind of being weirder and weirder and weirder as the film goes on. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the finale of, is, is completely, finale like, is completely bonkers. Yeah. Completely if bonkers. You had any, 
if you had any reservations about where the world that this is set in, it will answer all its questions for you by the finale of this movie. And uh, that's kind of where it kind of reminded me of Heather's a little bit. Yeah. But maybe, you know, not to not to argue against the director. I think she knows what she wants to do um, much better than I have an idea of and knows a lot more than me. But I, I think I would have needed those messages a little bit more earlier that kind of just kind of prompt me in because I think it eases you in so slowly that by the time it comes, it's kind of like, oh, it's this kind of movie. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that's just something I came across during it. Yeah. But apart from that, that's 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 a small bearing compared to the the hilarious kind of top notch fun time I had watching this. It's um, it's it's really really funny. It's really witty, and uh, it feels like a modern day kind of clueless vibe. Like I feel like it's gonna be a cult classic of that genre, as mm-hmm. many many of those films are, and it hits the right generation at the right time. And I, I can I can see myself watching Bottoms again. I really oh, want to yeah, see 100%. it again. <laughs> yeah, I you know I do as well because it is it is very rich and dense with stuff going on in every sort of scene, whether it's in the foreground or background. There's always some character doing something, and it's always well thought, whether that's in the costume design or just an offhanded conversation that another student's having in the back of the room. There's always something that um, that the filmmakers are always thinking about, and Senna and, and both of them in their writing, that try to kind of flesh out this world as much as possible. And the jokes keep coming at you. And uh, for a movie that has about a gazillion jokes, for 90% of them to land, is pretty... Yes. And you know, it is refreshing to see somebody who made a really good indie film and got very well regarded and critically Mm -hmm. acclaimed not to be thrown into the big, big studio system and just go make a Marvel film or a Lion King and actually be able to (laughs) be like, here's a slightly bigger budget, what you want to make. And they're like, I know I made a kind of more serious indie film or comical still, but I want to make a balls to the wall high school nostalgic 100%. film 100% and I, I admire that and I, I love I love the career trajectory of Emma Siegelman so far and I, I can't wait to see what she does next and I hope she continues to work with Rachel Sennett because she is a rising star I think yeah they, they seem like a really good pairing really not fair to appreciate on Lion King man the movie hasn't came out yet Barry, Jen- Barry Jenkins still has, has time I just can't believe he's doing it is it coming I can't out believe, next year I can't believe the director of Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk and the Underground Railroad is doing The Lion King 2. <laughs> just, just, just. Anyway. He's getting a house. He's getting a house, he's, isn't he? Yeah, he's getting pay- a new house. It's paying for something. It's paying um, for maybe something. A be- maybe a better project. But yeah, I, I also really like talking about costuming. I love that all the sort of the, the guys in this movie that are, you know, these, these jocks, but they're like a wimpy um subversion of that trope and they're permanently whether they're in school or outside of school they're permanently wearing the full um football regalia with the shoulder pads and everything um it just further sort of highlights this point of this like sort of like ma- you know this toxic masculine sort of um these characters are just <laughs> so overdrawn um but i love that choice to have them permanently wearing that as an outfit that was really really cool yeah, I loved a lot about this film. I really did. Loved a lot about it. I bought it in Canada <laughs> before it had its UK release, which was literally the, like a week or two after I got back. And I was like, God damn it! I could have could have seen it in the cinema, but uh, yeah, looking forward to, uh, to to catching it again at some point. So can't wait, can't wait. Uh, don't need to spin the wheel for the next one because it is just one final film. 
but this is another pine film. Watch this on the way to Canada. And it is, t- turns out very um, strangely, turned out to be a Canadian film. So that was two films, very Canadian right. based. <laughs> I don't know if Air Canada's <laughs> in-flight entertainment uh, is is very Canadian based, but yeah, just ha- so happened to uh, jump on that one. But I, I think I actually messaged you to say this is the film I'm thinking of watching, and you were like, "Oh, I've heard good things," and I had heard nothing, so I went in blind. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, I think that this movie is should be seen by every person who ever was a white boy he loved movies and and to the detriment of their friends and family um didn't shut up about it um probably you know admittedly still doesn't shut up about it enough uh needs to know their audience um yeah this this movie kind of really caught me by surprise um it's really sweet in, in a way that you feel the movie's going a certain way at the beginning there's this treacle treacle sort of like uh coding to the film that you think oh, i know this is going to be the kid's going to have a little you know revelation moment and everything's going to be happy at the end but you know the char- main character of this film kind of gets punished and taught a lesson um probably one that's deserved it's both sympathetic to him and also wants him to learn as well which i was really surprised by it doesn't um, shy away from making him not the nicest of characters at times yeah, he, he it, well, it's like it's the thing, isn't it? I mean, you're you're a kid, and uh, you're head in the clouds, and you feel like everything revolves around you. Yeah, that you're. It's that main character syndrome. It's that every everybody is going to congratulate you and get you to where you want to be and high five you while you're at it, and you're just not gonna ask anybody else how their day is or you know sympathize with anybody else's story. It's just it's just about you and. Yeah, um, Isaiah Lettinen, who plays Lawrence Queller, uh, the main character, he's really, really good in this. I hadn't seen him in anything before. Um, but he he is not afraid to kind of really show the ugliness of this character sometimes. Mm. And really, you know, sometimes it's kind of awkward. It's kind of like watching a kid in the middle of a shopping aisle throw his toys at the pram. And you, you feel a little bit repulsed by it. But, and and there's a there's a moping in his own situation. We get revealed that his father had passed away. Um, he actually committed suicide mm. um, years ago. And it's something that he, he you know, he, he does lean heavy on. He he will bring it up and rely on it to get him out of situations of, of, of ill behavior. It's worth saying that this is about a cinephile who gets a job at a video store and then forms a friendship a very close friendship with the female manager who is Alana. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So we, the, this movie is a bonding movie about them too. Really? This is what, this is what it turns into. And it comes a bit of a nostalgia piece about, it's a bit of a love letter to blockbuster yeah. as well. We didn't have blockbuster in Northern Ireland. We had extra vision, which was basically exactly the same thing. And they both died at exactly the same year and time. But, um, yeah, it reminded me of those days that the romanticism of going into the video shop, um, trying to talk to the person behind the desk about this movie, and they look at you glare face, going like, "Just work there," um, and you just completely are unbeknownst to it. But yeah, she, uh, Romina Dugo, as Alana, gives a really, really strong performance in here too. Mm. Um, they, she's the one put, putting him in his place, 
uh, where nobody else is and just letting him carry on his behavior. And I think that these two are really good all pairing in this movie. Yes. Yeah, they're very good. And because there's an age difference and it's kind of like your first kind of crush as well, there's an element of that to it. Yeah, it makes for a really kind of odd couple that, you know, you shouldn't root for. And yeah, sometimes you actively don't because you're like, what's going on here? But yeah, no, it's really nice, really nice. I don't have the nostalgia for Blockbuster like you do because I was in Germany at the time when Blockbuster was a thing. Uh, And we just had the Naffy and there was like a small section in the Naffy which had some DVDs you could rent. Um, And I didn't get the experience of like a big, big rental video store. Um, So yeah, obviously all my kind of nostalgia for that kind of vibe and feel is through films. And this film reminded me most of Clerks, the Kevin Smith film. It felt like a really kind of like had Kevin Smith made Clerks now with a maybe a more kind of mature outlook on it. I feel yes. like this is what that film might have been. A more kind of rose-tinted glasses at his childhood maybe or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I, it gave me those kind of vibes and I, and I really liked that. My only criticism was we are supposed to see Lawrence as this kind of budding young filmmaker, and yet we don't know if he's any good at it. And we sure, see like sure. a little bit at the start of one of his homemade films, uh, but you don't want really to get anything else. And I wanted to see more from him. I wanted to see what kind of silly things he had made and and have a better idea as to whether he was kind of a prodigy or not. <laughs> um, obviously, yeah, the film but... leans into him not being one. Um but I just, I think I, that's it. Yeah. I wanted to kind of see the stupid things that he made with his friends because I feel like that's always fun. Well, I think that kind of helps in the naivety of the character that he just feels like everything's going to slow into place. He is somebody, he's like an encyclopedia for every movie that comes out. You know, he just consumes and watches and likes regurgitating information because that's easy to do. Mm-hmm. Right, it's easy to do that. We can all we can all do that as as film watchers and film film fans. But he doesn't want to do the hard work. He doesn't want you know he he's not going out and being creative with the camera uh, because he thinks that he's just so, going to suddenly go to NYU film school and suddenly become the new Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. And this is kind of part of the lesson he needs to learn. He needs to learn that life wasn't created for you. To be put on this earth you've kind of got to it's a two-way street you got to meet people in the middle you got to and you'll only grow as a person and potential budding filmmaker if you experience life with other people and that's kind of the journey that we get and the humility that he earns just maybe it's kind of it's awkward to watch sometimes he makes a mistake and he makes another one and another one and another one and it gets worse and worse each time and we're like i don't know what's going to happen to this kid and you know, it, we do get the ending that we want <laughs> at the end of this film, um, although it's minor, and it feels really nice, nice and earned. And this movie just took me by surprise because I thought we were going to get a bit more of a conventional um, story that was going to be a bit more on Lawrence's side, but we got a different kind of movie, and I really like its low budget energy. You know, yeah, it's it's not. You know, is the world completely believable? The video store feels a bit kitchen sink and everything. But it really adds to it. I think it lets the the actors live in the space and really occupy the dynamics between them really, really well. It has a really nice sort of indie sound to the score in this movie. And it just it's 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 a real kind of it's awkward at times, but it's a cuddly blanket. And it, I think it's a movie that a lot of cinephiles 
who maybe still are in that mood kind of need to see. Yeah. It felt like a low-budget indie that I haven't seen in a long time. Like one of those kind of old-school Sundance Film Festival films. Um, It just, yeah, I really liked it. And it is a directorial debut from Chandler Levesque, uh, her first film or her first feature film. So, yeah, pretty excited to see what she does next because, yeah, really was quite impressed by I like movies. Yeah. And I like this movie. (laughs) Yeah, it was really good. (laughs) Um, What a boring show. We've liked all these reviews that we've uh, done of these short films. We've, over these short reviews of these films. (laughs) Well, short films compared to Flowers of the Kilometer. Killers of the Flowers. You did it. You did it. I did it it again. No, but I liked all of these movies. It's boring. We've got nothing to really fight about over these last six movies, but we, we, we enjoyed all of them. And that brings us now to as you said, not flowers of the killer moon, killers of the flower moon. As you may or may not know, Chris and I are not in the same room currently. So when we wanted to start a podcast together, we needed a platform that was able to record high quality audio online and separately, and also gave us the illusion that we may even be in a studio together. I don't remember exactly how we came across Zencaster, but we've been using it since day one and has never let us down. It's easy to record a podcast of Zencaster. You log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. Record studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Feel a sense of zen knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. If you've ever thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Zencaster is one of the greatest tools used at the film angle, and that's why we wanted to share the love with you. So go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our code THEFILMANGLE and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences that we do for all our podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Back to the show. So, kind of the movie we've been, obviously, unashamedly, been really excited for all year. When you hear Martin Scorsese is coming out with a big, epic film of any kind, regardless of subject matter, whether it's gangsters, whether it's a period drama in New York City, whether it's just another Robert De Niro vehicle, or a DiCaprio vehicle, you come with it with a set of expectations, which is kind of fair, but unfair to Scorsese. I mean, it's he is probably still the greatest American filmmaker alive. Is that fair to say? I mean, I mean, be... potentially the greatest filmmaker of 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 all time. So I think, yeah. of course, we put the the kind of responsibility and and pressure on him, like. He's made nothing but amazing films. I, I can't remember the last film of his that I actively disliked. Some of them I might love more than others, but he's just a powerhouse of filmmaking, but also his hand on the kind of culture of film and how he's restored so many films. His his name has come up a thousand times when we've been talking about the BFI site and sound blind spots. How many films were 
soon to be lost until him and his foundation restored them and brought them back to their kind of uh, place within the canon. And and I just think like of of course anything that he does, we're gonna we're gonna see. I mean, the dude isn't even so old school that he doesn't mind pissing about on TikTok. I don't know if you've seen his yeah. his daughter's TikTok. Like he's on there all the time, being silly, goofing around, and the guy's like eighty and. Yeah, I mean, I just, I love him. I love his outlook, and I love just what he's done for films. Um, so right, he's like the he's like everybody's surrogate grandfather of cinema, isn't he? Yeah. And uh, you know, you watch him in interviews. He's so sensitive and open minded, and you know, he just kind of wants to throw learn about everything, doesn't he? He kind of is interested in everything and everybody, and wants to know everybody's story, and that makes him such a you know, somebody you want to root for as a filmmaker that he cares about the craft so much, but he's not one of these auteurs that is so far up himself that he's going to let that get in the way. He brings a sensitivity and objectivity to whatever film he's doing, and he will it'll be all consuming, and he'll throw himself into it to try to do the best job possible. That's the guarantee you know you're going to get when you get a Scorsese film is that it's not going to be half-assed by any measure. He the guy is going to do his best and. He spends lots of years researching, working with people, you know, with Killers of the Flower Men, a lot of people behind the scenes of this film, even making the costumes, were of an Osage um, heritage. So he's not in just telling the story or, you know, from a a white Italian director's uh, perspective, but he also wants to inject as much fiber of the actual people that he's representing in the film as much as possible into this. I think that, that that comes about really well, and I think there's a lot of kind of behind-the-scenes stuff which really talk to this. Um, worth saying that the film uh, is set in the 1920s in Oklahoma, and at that time in Oklahoma, the Osage um, Nation, or First Nations people, they are, because they... Um, they have most of the land there and the land is is full of oil they are the kind of richest within that uh, community and that society um and there's a um bit of a, a a kind of conspiracy of murder as as many of them are kind of being taken off one by one and uh, also being married into um non osage uh, families and you know the white man coming in and basically stealing yeah. all the land and killing all the people um but in a very kind of slow and manipulative manner yes. uh and it's basically like a read the period of years yeah yes yeah yeah and uh, leonardo dicaprio plays um um ernest who comes in uh to kind of live alongside his uncle Uh, played by Robert De Niro and is uh, basically kind of not, well, I would say forced, but not really forced. He was very happy to go along with it into this kind of marrying into the Osage nation and, uh, you know, slowly wiggling your way into the land rights or the head rights as they call it of the, of the different lands and the money and stuff that's involved there. Interesting enough, the film of which uh, is, is based on a book and the book is actually uh, very much from the point of view of Tom White, who is the detective that Jesse Plemons plays. And mm. the original script for this film, Leonardo DiCaprio, was going to be playing that character, and it was very much going to be a detective story. And they kind of realized that they were very much showing this story from a very kind of different perspective and maybe not a perspective 
uh, more of that, a true crime thing that was probably turning yeah. into. And they realized that isn't kind of where the heart of the story is and completely redeveloped the script to be about Ernest and Molly, who's played by uh, Lily Gladstone, who is the um, who is Ernest's wife, who is part of the Osage Nation. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, and and Scorsese spoke a lot to Osage people to kind of get an idea of of, of like how he was going to tell the story and what they were going to see from the story, and kind of really tell it in a way that was not just like oh some white guy showed up and is trying to tell our story kind of thing, which is what it is still, and I'm not, I'm sure. I imagine more people would be happier than not, but you never know. Um, I feel, as another white man, that the story was told well, uh, but it's not my place to say at the end of the day. But I did really enjoy this film. Yeah, I think Scorsese does enough to be self-aware of that fact, and uh, we'll get into why that is. But yeah, he does a lot of... These are interesting characters to kind of play. I think Ernest DiCaprio's character especially is an interesting way to kind of lead the movie because he is very gray in, in, in the darkest way possible. You know, he's, he is, uh, it's hard not to be on board with DiCaprio's charisma inherently just as an actor. So DiCaprio, I kind of feel out of the the three main leads is going to lead the most interesting conversations kind of coming out of this, people coming out of the cinema to see this. Um, Partly because of how DiCaprio tips that fine line in earnest as a misguided sort of halfwit um who seemingly loves seemingly loves molly but also he's this complicit man he knows exactly what he's a part of yeah um, and that took me back as well because going into this film i thought it was going to be very much like he was the naive person who fell in love but is kind of being manipulated without knowing by his uncle as to what is happening. Uh, but you're right. I think it, it, it does take like a good hour into the film for him to truly show his true colors when he orders the hit of kind of somebody. And you're like, oh, wait, he's because you're kind of like on the edge of like, does he know? Mm-hmm. Does he not know? He's fully aware of what's going on. And all of a sudden, you're like, I've been following a character and I've been maybe rooting for a character who is a bastard. <laughs> you know, like he is yeah. a horrible, horrible person. Yeah, I, I think we're way past spoilers now. But Di- <laughs> yeah, DiCaprio spends a large amount of the time in the film looking after Molly, um, who is very ill. Um, and he's administering her the inverted commas insulin medication that his uncle um De Niro's King Hale um and the doctors have provided him and uh, we as an audience kind of know straight away that it's laced with poison and intended to kill Molly over a period of time so that her oil head rights go straight to, to Ernest and his uncle so now I think it's fairly certain to assume that Ernest while initially maybe being a bit naive he, uh, at the very very beginning to the situation certainly knows what he's giving Molly eventually. Yeah. Um. When that point hits up, it's kind of up to debate when that moment is and whether he's doing it under ignorance or whether it's just pure, you know, denial and loves Molly uh, is up to debate also. Uh, and, that, and that's why it's quite interesting. You kind of come out of this film feeling, well, do I have to have a definitive way to feel about this character? Um, we're so used to that in cinema. I would argue that we should stop trying to come into movies expecting to have black and white emotions for 
characters like we need to have this finality and and pretty bow tied up upon completing the film you know sussing out who everybody is and and why they do things i think the most human way a character can be portrayed on screen is to have that ambiguity um as we ourselves are human beings and who contradict ourselves mostly every day obviously not on course of course not on the level that Ernest is doing here is completely different but you know it's an interesting topic for discussion um that this film kind of props up and I don't think we're supposed to like him or hate him at the end of this thing it's 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 complicated I think ultimately he does terrible things and is about it is a bad person categorically yeah but we understand why Molly can be kind of taken up for the ride too and we we do feel that there is genuine love and affection between these two people in spite of everything else that Ernest does yeah despite is it there is I think you're right there is real love between them but Ernest is so stupid and such a pathetic (laughs) character that he he does these things to kind of ruin that anyway without even realizing it but I guess then the argument is is like does anybody who truly loves their wife would they be willing to do these kind of things and the answer is no so like at the end of the day what a dickhead but <laughs> but you're right we are left with that kind of like oh man he's he's just never he never knows the right decision and he's constantly mm-hmm. making the wrong ones and you feel like there is some kind of stupidity there it's not all malicious but uh, yeah, he's he's a stupid character, and uh, well, not a stupid character, but he's a stupid person. And I, I love the way Leonardo DiCaprio played him, and kudos to him it's for playing him. Not all big A-listers would, you know, Leo's an attractive A-lister, and he plays a very ugly, very pathetic man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got these false teeth in as well, and uh, his yeah, face he... looks like it's about to burst the whole time. Looks, oh yeah, he looks terrible. He is he is the crank to eleven performance in this movie, which is not a bad thing at all. I think that's placed DiCaprio's strength. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, we've got Lily Gladstone and his Molly at Urquhart, who in a way is the film's linchpin. Mm. Juxtaposed with the extravagant performance DiCaprio is giving, she really kind of lends a calm intelligence to the film and brings a lot of layers to Molly, I feel. She's quiet but strong and outspoken when she needs to be. And you feel that even without Ernest or a husband in general, she'd be able to look after herself outside of this situation, even in a man's world. It's kind of reminded me a lot of Haley Steinfeld's performance back in 2010 um, in True Grit. Maybe like not as outspoken as, as Steinfeld's Maddie Ross character, but that same wisdom and that independence in a world dominated by men, you wouldn't sort of give women that, a lot of autonomy. I think she's, I think she's great in this. I think she... She does a lot with her face that really just kind of tones the film down and really adds, uh, lends a bit of grace and elegance to to the Oscars try that she's sort of representing on, on, on screen. You know, it kind of it's it's completely at opposed to the the aggressive white white man business spirit that's kind of going on for this time. These moguls. You know, we get the grace of this, these people shown free Molly. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. My only criticism would be like there wasn't enough of her, but then she also is mainly ill and on her kind of death's door for most of the film. So there's there's a lot of that to contend with as well. I I, I felt like I wanted more of her, and that's the sign of a good performance. 
Um, and I it's also when you're I was, dying throughout the movie, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I was also I feel like I was quite frustrated because there's this whole kind of like does she does she not know that kind of Ernest is in on all this, and the film plays with that a lot. But near the end, you're like, come on, he's clearly yes. a bad guy. Um, and well, she, she doesn't. I think she, but she does know. I think she. But knows. the film doesn't truly let you know that. I think the film wants you to make decide that for yourself and it's difficult because you can't blame it on the story because the story is based on truth and the truth is she was in the courtroom supporting Ernest right this whole thing uh so you can't love makes you do crazy things man love makes you do crazy things but yeah there is an element of like surely she must know uh (laughs) what's going on here um but yeah it's 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 a frustrating at times The, the film is uh is is a, is is a brilliantly kind of frustrating experience as you kind of watch these terrible things happen but can't shout at the screen at any moment. Yeah. Uh, but it's really well done. It's really well paced, and it's three and a half hours long, and I loved it. And we've been moaning about long films, and I don't care. Martin Scorsese can make a film that's twenty hours long, and I'll watch it. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, we had he he's made the same argument that James Cameron made that you'll sit in front of your TV and watch something for hours without stopping, and yet that's absolutely fine. I think Scorsese gets away with the argument more than Cameron does for Avatar 2. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, this film that we're talking about today actually is a lot, is well, not a lot longer. It's about 20 minutes longer, but you feel the runtime of Avatar 2 a lot more than this. Yes, um, I, wasn't in, I wasn't in pain at the end of... Um... No. Killers of the Flower Moon. I was in pain at the end of Avatar 2. <laughs> and we did watch it on IMAX as well, but I felt like my eyeballs were about to burst. Well, you know, coming you know, coming in at three hours and twenty-six minutes, you know, and initially can seem quite daunting for anyone to dedicate their own personal time to sitting in a cinema, you know, for you know, especially you know, you gotta drive to the cinema, you gotta like leave, gotta leave the place. It's you're, you're devoting half your day to this thing. Yeah. And especially for general audiences that, you know, maybe aren't as, you know, in on the know or following the story or even Scorsese as much as a filmmaker as others. But I, for one, feel that after seeing Killers of the Flower Moon, it's hard to see this being any shorter. I think given how much Scorsese has put the time into telling the story and dedicated and in such an all-encompassing way. And the story definitely intersects with many different people's lives from various points of view over the course of several years in the 1920s. So, you know, it's, it feels like a novel. It feels like an abridged version of something epic. Yeah. And you get that scope. The first R, you know, I've heard people saying, oh, the first R, this is a bit slow. I, I thought the first R was kind of the strongest portion of the movie for me. I think it's an incredible setup. Plants all the chess pieces exactly where they need to be. You know the dynamics of everybody. And then you just see everything kind of go to hell by 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 the third hour of this film yeah um, i agree and, i felt like there was no fat on this i didn't feel like it was slow at all i mean thelma shoemaker his editor and always has been editor is just edits the is incredible she's an incredible editor and none of this feels slow at any point like you said it's like a book it's like reading a book it's a page turn you want to know what's going to happen next mm-hmm. even like even scenes where it's just like a dinner party and it feels like nothing monumental is going on everything's going on yeah you know you're seeing all the dynamics at play like you would in a book with a really good filler scene um we need talk about de niro i probably think is the best performance in easy. this movie easy and that's in a in, in a film of uh of incredible performances. performances he is 
amazing in this. Where has yeah. this Robert De Niro been? I feel like he saves his best performances. It's not the bad. It's not films. the bad grandpa. Sort no, of it's stuff, not bad it? grandpa. It's not Meet the Fockers. It. This is. Oh, he's, he's funny in Meet the Fockers. <laughs> he's, he's funny in Meet the Parents. Meet the Parents. What you want to milk me too? <laughs> That's kind of funny. He's just. He's on another level here. Like, yes, he like is. you're truly watching uh, an insanely talented performer. Um, just he act, plays the worst person he ever lived. Yeah most evil person without ever truly like embodying evil he is just evil as he's a a wolf in sheep's clothing the definition of it yes and like but so evil that he's kind of blinded himself into thinking he's this nice old man like he like he truly believes he is friends like he calls uh, members of the osage like his best friends and then ends up kind of like ordering their deaths and would probably still say that, like, oh, yeah, he was my best friend. And he oh, believes yeah. it. Well, he has the audacity in one scene, a really good scene, where the chief kind of brings all the local members of the tribe and subsidiary areas together in a tent to kind of discuss, like, these murders are going on too much. We need to do something about this. We need to bring, you know, law enforcement from, from Washington down to have a look at this thing. And De Niro's keen heel has the audacity to sit right in the center of that meeting and not only nod and agree, but claim that he'll put money towards to help find the perpetrators. And he does it with such, you know, sort of genuine enthusiasm and sincerity. And it's like the guy doesn't even know he's doing it. It just comes so naturally to him. Yeah. And it's 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 a pure manifestation of evil without ever going into caricature. He's never OTT in this role. He is pretty stone faced and you can completely see why somebody who like Ernest who is completely you know straight out of the first world war is a is a bit of a dimwit and completely can get absorbed by his uncle's personality and how mm. well financially he's doing he he'll kind of claims as well it is what it is you know the way things are and how they all will always be if i'm not here somebody else is going to be doing it and you know oh, i hate doing it too son but you know, it's just the way it's got to be. Unfortunately, it's just we're, we're we're better beings, and that's this attitude, this sort of superiority that we these people are put here to be lesser than us, and we need the money because they're children; they can't look after it. Mm. We have to be, we have to be their guardians to even when they have to they spend it all on on clothes and cars. We're we're doing the right thing here, yeah. and it's how poisonous that is and how it seeps into the water of every white man and woman that lives in that town. And and it, it, it's, it's crazy. It, he's, he's evil and he's yeah. so good. He's so good. At and it. it's great because he's not also like, he's the mastermind, but literally everybody in the town is in on it. And uh, I was listening to an interview with Scorsese the other day. And he said, it's not a, it's, it's not a whodunit. It's a who didn't do it. And I thought that was a really interesting way to kind of sum up this idea that yeah, like literally good. everybody is complicit within this kind of um, ingrown societal racism towards the Osage people and uh, taking their land, taking their money and taking their lives. One last thing. Um, my favorite thing about the film, um, I'm always really, really in tune to whatever soundtrack Scorsese is using. He's, he's, he is one of the best living filmmakers at incorporating a really well thought out soundtrack, whether it's songs from old or new score into film. He's just, he invented making songs cool in movies. It just kind of, it's a, it's a thing. 
and I think composer Robbie Robertson, you know, from the you know from the band from Bob Dylan, he passed away um, this year after making the film. I think his score here is really really good. It's not showy, kind of like De Niro's character. It's a perfect match. It's sinister. It's this sort of string guitar that is always pulsing in the background. It's the same repetitive rhythm and tune in every scene where something bad or menacing is going on. And it feels like you're just taking an escalator down into hell slowly and slowly and slowly. And I thought it really, you know, it just really crescendoed in this film really well for me. And it's I, I really liked that so much. So I, I went back to listen to some excerpts because I, I really thought they were, I actually had it in my head for a good week after the movie. I yes. thought it was great. It's very quiet as well. Like it's not like an overpowering soundtrack. It's, it's a sort of like boiling that. thing underneath, yes. isn't it? Yeah, very kind of uh, subtle use of, of of music and yeah. But yeah, that glowing reviews uh, for Flowers of the Killers of the Flower <laughs> Moon. Three for three. I just can't get it right. I don't know what it is. Like something in my brain isn't wired properly. Think, but... think, think. I think maybe you just got to think about the subject matter. They're you know, they're, they're killing the pretty thing. Yeah. The killing, yeah, killing the pretty thing. Killing, killing pretty the pretty thing. Do yeah. you think? Uh, do you think Apple will take a chance on Scorsese again? Because Netflix did it with the two hundred million movie from Scorsese that probably didn't give them the returns they wanted. I feel like Flowers of the Killers of the Flower Moon probably quite a you know three and a half hours. That's the killer for most people to go see it in the cinema. Two hundred million plus, I believe, probably isn't going to make that back. Is he going to go? What's the next streaming? Is he going to Disney Plus you know next? What? Like, who's going to give him two hundred million to make a film again? You know, a lot of the films that we talked about tonight, whilst a lot of fun, could mostly be seen at home and probably have the same experience. This is something you need to see on a big screen. You know, you need to be in the zone to watch a movie like this. It's very all encompassing. It's a beautiful looking movie. It's so well designed. You need to be wrapped up in this world and and pay the story the attention it deserves. There's not, like you said, there's not nights of fat here. But if you're watching this at home on Apple TV, we're all human. It's really hard not to pick up that phone and start looking at something. It'd be easier to wee, though. It'd be easier to wee. But no, you're right. Seeing it on the big screen is better. There has been a big thing about them going to, they're now kind of telling uh, cinema chains off for putting intermissions in. I thought there was going to be an intermission in mine. I thought uh, it was pre-told by View that there was going to be one, and there wasn't one, so don't you don't need to go tell off View. <laughs> kind of wish there was. I know I know. Well, Scorsese's advocating against an intermission. I really did need a wee. Two and a half hours in, I did go. I actually had a friend of mine message, the, uh, message me about the show, about the film angle, the show, saying that we should talk about when to take loo breaks in films, in long films these days. So <laughs> Harry, if you're listening, there's a scene where Ernest is getting interrogated. I had to run to the loo then. If you're quick, I came back. I felt like I didn't miss much, all right? <laughs> probably, probably right. But I don't think there's a moment in this movie where you would clear cut it to an intermission. It just, there's no... It, we say it's like a novel, but the, there's no big chapters here. It doesn't end and you get the breather. Everything in here is really relevant. Just pee, pee before. Don't drink lots I before. Did pee pee before, before, but it was also it was like a morning that went into the afternoon, so I had to have food with me and everything. You know, like it's, it, like you said, it takes up half your day, and the half of the day of, of mine that it took up was a pretty prominent meal. <laughs> oh no, I just think it would have broken the spell a little bit if I was to have my concentration kind of interrupted even for ten minutes. I was so 
enamored by the spell of the movie, the score, the visuals, the story itself. I just feel like, oh, I would have taken me out a little bit. That's me personally, but yeah. Um, don't bring just don't bring a drink if you be you have to be de- dehydrated for this movie unfortunately but you know the people in this movie went through a lot worse than your bladder so <laughs> you know get over it <laughs> just go away if you if you're younger if you're a, if you're a young guy like chris then uh, i'm sure you'll be fine but if you're an old three, man like me three years your junior <laughs> if you're an old man like me <laughs> <laughs> oh, i'm not looking forward to getting to 30 then <laughs> i'm not 30 yet i'm not 30 yet <laughs> Oh dear. Well, it's a thing now. Like you're right. If I drink during the movie, I'll need to pee. I do have actually a pretty bad bladder, even though I made it free this whole thing. But if I, I, I do the tactic of I don't drink like an hour before I go cinema. I pee just before the movie. Always do that. And then even if I don't need to go. And then I whatever drink I bring in with me, I don't really I don't really drink it until halfway through the movie. That's mm. kind of my tactic. But and it always works. I haven't been. I haven't been. I go to the cinema every week, basically, and I haven't been to the toilet during a movie in like seven years. It's very good. So it's very good. I try not for to someone most with a bad of the bladder. Time. Most yeah. of it. I don't think this was the first one this year. I had to run out to the way, and I was beating myself up for it. I, <laughs> I literally ran there. It's really annoying. The men's <laughs> toilets are far away from the screen. I literally ran oh, out no. the door. I was like, I'm running, man. Oh yeah, because that's the watershed, so you have to like run across no, the No, unfortunately, I didn't see the watershed. I saw it at View. Sorry, watershed. But yeah, no, uh-huh. I ran. <laughs> I ran. View the view in Plymouth had that problem too because you'd have two lanes, so you had screen one to whatever in one side, and like, and then all the even numbers in another lane, the mm. other side of the cinema, and then one of those lanes had both men and female toilets. And then the other lane only had female. And when you had a movie in that section, you had to like go all the way across the other side. So yeah, I feel you, Ben. Just don't drink. Don't drink when you go see this movie. That's that's it. That's all I'm gonna say. Right. But it's a it's right. good. <laughs> but yeah, you're probably right. Interrogation scene. If you need to pee, I mean, but it's pretty late. It's like it's like two two hours fifty it minutes. Was, in <laughs> I remember exactly because I looked at my watch. Two and a half hours. Two and a half. It's hours. like two and a half hours. And yeah, had one hour left to go. That was when I was like, "There's definitely not an intermission now. It's there. there's definitely not." Maybe take a pee during the the Brennan Fraser uh, scene. Maybe that might oh, be. Oh no! Everyone's being <laughs> way too harsh on Brennan Fraser. He, I liked him. I liked him in this. Anyway, yeah. this has been a, a a massive bumper episode of the film angle, but we had a lot to talk about. Um and all very positive. We need to find something yeah. to hate, Chris, or at least um, something we can different opinions. We can talk about all the other Saw movies one by one. Do you want to do that? But again, we'll be too <laughs> close on our opinions. We need to. We need something de- divisive. Um, who knows? Maybe we'll get divisive next week. I think we're going to have a few of our BFI blind spots come up next week. So stay tuned for that. I'm sure we'll be going through a few of those. Um, but yeah, uh, continue to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. But this has been the film angle for this week. I'm Chris, and I'm Alex. Am I fair in wrapping this up? Did you not want to wrap this up? No, I think I think we've exhausted the audience enough, and they Sorry. they need to have a, they need to have a pee break. Right you now. looked at me, and I was like, was I not supposed to wrap this up? <laughs> and then there was a gap because I thought you looked at me going, "Am I saying something? Am I wrapping up?" <laughs> Uh, you think we would have had this thing done by now we just can't do endings we can't do endings we gotta write them we gotta write them yeah we need to actually start we we don't have pre pre pre-production podcast meetings we need we need to have set we 
said a wee bit of time. Before. We do a little bit. We do a little bit. Oh, good. Uh, we need to work <laughs> on some signals to be like, wrap it up, baby, wrap it up. That's 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 the thing about doing something like 200 miles away from each other. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, anyway, that's been the film angle for this week. I'm Alex. And I'm Chris. Oh, we said it again. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>